So we're in John 6 today. And the first, the first two words we see in this chapter are after this. After this. And since it's been two weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John, it'd probably be a good idea to ask what after this means. Uh, I realize, though, that the words in the Greek translated as after this are really just literary markers that could also be translated as something like later on or any other way that communicates that John's now simply telling a new story, a different story, to continue his argument or to continue his theme throughout this book. So we shouldn't necessarily be thinking that these things happened in immediate succession and sometimes even chronologically. Um, more than we should be aware that, that we should be looking for the furthering of John's argument, the furthering of the theme as he communicates to us these things in the gospel. John is going to further, in chapter 6, make his point. So the next obvious question then is, what's the point? What is the point, or what are the points that John is trying to make? So first, remember the point of the whole gospel of John. Uh, found in chapter 21, verse 31, he wrote this, These things, all of this gospel, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have eternal life in his name. So the point of this book, and therefore one of the points of every message from this book, is that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. He is the crucified, buried, and risen Savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And salvation is found in no one but Him. So believe and be saved. That's the point. Uh, So far in this Gospel, John the Apostle has proclaimed this truth, that Jesus is the Son of God. John the Baptist has declared it. God the Father and the Holy Spirit have confirmed it. Jesus himself affirmed this as true, that he is the Son of God. Uh, His works have given witness to this truth, to this fact. And Jesus reminded the Jewish leaders that Moses, the Old Testament scriptures, pointed to him as well as the Christ. And they pointed to him all along. So Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. In John 3, who has come to take away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said that. And then in John 3, that the world might be saved through him. And as Jesus said to Nicodemus, on the flip side of salvation, he did not come, Jesus did not come to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. And that brings up the second point of John's argument. Uh, carrying on his theme into chapter 6. Remember, the first point is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then the second is that we must believe to have eternal life. People born in sin and living in sin, Jesus said, are condemned already and remain so until they believe. And in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation, right? There's no condemnation. In other words, uh, you could sum up the formula, if you will, for the Gospel of John like this. Number one, a statement. Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior. Number two, a question. What are people going to do with that fact? And for us, what are we going to do with that fact? And this is exactly, this is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. 
Nicodemus, you are condemned already. You must be born again, born from above. You must believe. Uh, And he said, the Spirit will blow where it wishes. The one on whom the Spirit blows will be born from above. They'll believe, and whoever believes will have eternal life. And following this teaching from Jesus to Nicodemus, we begin to see condemned people, remember condemned already, we see condemned people being confronted with the truth of who Jesus is, and we get to see how they respond to him, how they respond to that truth. We saw the Samaritan woman. In her condemned position, she was looking for a tall glass of water, a tall drink of water from several men. Jesus offered her living water, and she drank that and never thirsted again. She believed and was no longer condemned. The official from Capernaum, in his condemned position, he just wanted his son to be physically healed. And Jesus told everyone within earshot, unless you see signs and wonders, you, in plural, you, will not believe. Jesus then healed the official's son, long distance, remember? And the official and his whole household afterwards believed. It says that they believed, no longer condemned. The paraplegic, the man who was called an invalid at the pool of Bethesda, wanted Jesus to get him into the water when it was stirring because of that urban legend that when the water stirred, they'd be healed if they got into the water. And how could he? His legs don't work, right? And Jesus then healed him right there. No water's necessary. And that newly physically whole man, with all his limbs fully operational, rejected Jesus. He rejected Jesus and turned him in to the Jewish authorities. Different, right? And then the Jewish leaders. Uh, they wanted proof. They wanted proof of Jesus' claim to have authority to do this kind of work, healing and telling people to pick up their beds and all that kind of stuff on the Sabbath. And Jesus gave it to them. He gave them the reasons. He gave them the proof. He told them exactly who he was and that they should believe. And those biblically literate, those educated religious men and leaders decided they wanted to kill Jesus. They rejected him. And they remained in their condemnation. All four examples start with a person or a type of person with the Jewish leader All four start out in the same place, condemned already, desiring temporal, physical, better myself uh, in in my own eyes and in the eyes of others, that kind of stuff. And they're all the same starting out. None of them naturally believed. And then Jesus reveals himself to all four. And what happens? What did they do with that truth? Well, to believe and to reject. Why? Because you must be born again from above. And then any person today might be tempted to say, well, uh, that's those four people. They were four people a whole long time ago, a group of people a whole long time ago. Their stories are specific to them and their time. They can't possibly be normative. They can't possibly characterize me. I'm different than them. I'm not condemned already. I got this. And that's when the Apostle John, we're going to say, says, after this, and we get ready to see what a crowd of 15,000 or more people do with the truth of Jesus' identity and mission. As if to say, 
if you don't identify with this woman, if you don't identify with this man with a sick child, if you don't identify with a person who's been handicapped their whole life, or a religious leader, if you think you're left out of that, how about a crowd of 15,000 plus people? And now as we wade into the waters of chapter 6, we'll get to see more about these people. And with that, more about man in general, which means more about ourselves and our own natural tendencies. And, of course, continue to learn more about Christ as he continues to reveal himself to us through his word. So you ready? John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Okay, it's so the same, same sea, different name. Uh, the name change actually happened at the time of Herod, because he had, he had recently built a new city on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and he named it, if you can guess, Tiberias. And so people in the area started calling it the Sea of Tiberias, just at that time. Uh, the locals called it that. Verse 2, And a large crowd was following him, following Jesus. Why? He gives us the answer right there. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Okay, so a crowd is growing. They're following Jesus around. And Jesus retreats. He goes away. He withdraws from the crowd up to the mountain. Uh, and we could ask, how long has this crowd been accumulating? This, this is a large crowd. How did it get that way? Why is it so large right now? And, and verse 4 helps us with this answer as well. Verse 4 says, now the Passover. Okay, so the Passover, uh, everybody's coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, so they're on their way there. The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Uh, also, the events of chapter 5, uh, they were near the time of Pentecost which is, in the Old Testament, the festival of weeks. And it was 49, 50 days from Passover. So that's why it's called Pentecost, 50, okay? Uh, so Pentecost was where chapter 5 was happening, which means that nearly a year has passed between chapter 5 and chapter 6. So you have two things going on there. You have a nearly a year of Jesus in his ministry, accumulating a crowd, and then you have Pentecost, so all these people are flooding towards Jerusalem, put the two together, and you've got a large crowd who sees and hears of signs and wants to see this Jesus. Does that make sense? How cool is it, though, to remember this? Christ died at Passover, and the Spirit came, and souls were being saved and added to the church at Pentecost. You know what Pentecost celebrates? The beginning of the harvest. Pretty cool. So, it's nearly been a year. Word's getting around. Passover's coming. The crowd's on the move. They're following Jesus on the way there. They want to see this show. They want to see these signs. Not necessarily the man, but what the man can do. Okay, amazingly, the other Gospels tell us that during this time, Jesus did heal many of their sick on this occasion, at this time, in this place. Uh, God showed his mercy on them and was moved with compassion, it says, because they were, quote, sheep without a shepherd. This is the time where that is spoken of, this crowd of people. So verse 5, lifting up his eyes, then, Jesus, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, well, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? 
And he said this to test him. For he himself, Jesus, knew what he would do. Okay, Jesus wasn't unsure of what to do. He wasn't going to change his mind or come up with a new and better plan. He's God. We talked about that last hour, didn't we? He's God. He's simply testing Philip. And for whose sake? For Philip's sake. Not for God's sake, but for Philip's sake. The Lord's testing teaches us where we are. He knows where we are. We're the ones who learn. It teaches us where we are, and it helps us to grow. Okay? God doesn't learn by our testing, but by God's grace, we can. Amen? So Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. A denarii was a day's wage, about a day's wage. So, so Philip is saying here that almost seven months of wages, seven months of wages would not be enough to adequately feed this crowd. They'd only be able to get a little, maybe, per person. Not enough. And do you think Philip was really doing the math in his head? Do you envision Philip there going around and taking roll, taking count, getting his calculator out, checking the tape again, and oh, it'd be about seven months' wages, Lord? No, he didn't go that far, okay? He's just making a statement here, as if he's saying, Jesus, there's no way, there's no way we can buy this entire crowd a meal. Well, maybe if we can't buy them a meal, maybe we can share. Maybe they can all share their sack lunches. So let's see. Verse 8, uh, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, uh, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Uh, now in Mark 6, we're told, uh, by the way, this account is in all four Gospels. In Mark 6, we're told that Jesus had also sent them into the crowd to see how much food they had. So there was the money option, and then there was the sharing option. Both of them were presented and offered as suggestions to go see what was to see. And evidently, this crowd had not come prepared that day. At least we know Andrew finds only this one boy. And he has these five barley loaves and these two fish. And they're probably small fish from that sea, you would think. Uh, they generally weren't eating these, you know, he didn't come in with this whale size of fish, okay? This little boy's got his little basket with his two little fishies in there. Uh, that's what's there for him to eat for himself. And know this too, the word loaves here, this translated loaves, uh, in the Greek can mean like a bun or a roll, okay? So this is not a loaf of bread that you can, all these pieces of bread. This is, these are rolls of bread, okay? Rolls of bread, this is what they have. And so Andrew, again, just like Philip, he's referring to what he has here. He sees what he has and what he's communicating. Uh, they're simply not enough. This is not going to cut it. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough money. So I guess it's a good day to fast. But then, verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. And John adds here, there was much grass in the place. Well, that's convenient. That's a good thing. It's not sandy or, or just rock or something like that. And it's good that John shares this with us because it reminds us, too, that John was there and he was an eyewitness of this event, lest we forget. Okay, so, so the men sat down. It's verse 10. About 5,000 in number. And remember, they're headed to Passover. Everyone went to Passover. Men, women, and children. Okay, so 5,000 men, you know, usually it's about a 50-50, right? Men and women in a, in, a, in a culture. 
So 5,000 men, let's, let's just guess about 5,000 women, okay? And then there's probably some children in there. If those men and women happen to be married, there's probably also children. So let's just undercut it and guess that they have one child per family, which would be a low estimate. So we have at least how many people there that day? 15,000. 15,000 plus people that day. That's a crowd. And then Jesus, verse 11, took the loaves. He took those five rolls. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish. And it says, it says this here, as much as they wanted. Did everybody get five rolls and two fish? Nope. Everybody got as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, their fill, they ate until they were stuffed. After this, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments uh, that nothing may be lost. And so the disciples, they gathered them up and filled, can you believe it, how many? Twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Uh, so the disciples each had their own box to take home from the restaurant, if you will, okay? Uh, in our home, we have half as many disciples. We've got six. And if we go out to a restaurant and there's leftovers, you know, those styrofoam boxes, they'll take the fork or their knife out and they'll kind of etch their initials in there to take it home, put it in the fridge, say, this is mine. Nobody else touched this lunch. This is my lunch for tomorrow. All the disciples had their own basket, their own doggy bag to take home with them that day. Now, uh, before we go on, though, what just happened here? Uh, this is like every Sunday school class in America is teaching this pretty soon, if not just lately, right? But what just happened here? What did Jesus just reveal about himself? What is he able to do? And the word that we ought to think is create. Jesus is a creator. Jesus just took five rolls and two little fish and fed 15,000 plus people. And I really doubt he tore the fish in half and had them, you know, reconstitute themselves and then pass them out, okay? Jesus takes this and turns it into enough for everyone. Jesus was creating food right before the disciples' eyes every time they came back from their job as waiters that day. They got baskets of fish and bread from Jesus. They took them out to a group of people and they came back to Jesus and all of a sudden out of this basket that this boy had brought, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more. All of them there. And I wonder, you wonder how much, uh, how good that food tasted. You think about it. Um, was it just like the fish and the bread that was in the boy's basket? And it just kept being like that, Maybe. Those fish had never swam in water. That bread had never been in an oven. It was just made right there. But that's for them to know and for us to, you know, maybe who cares. But interesting to think about. Uh, but how long do you think this took? Twelve, how many waiters that day? Twelve disciples. Fifteen thousand plus people. Uh, many of them getting seconds or thirds or whatever because they ate until they were filled why didn't Jesus just make the food appear on their laps, right? Could he not have said, hello, everyone, uh, the, the meal for today will be little fish and some barley rolls. And then there they are. All, could he have done that? 
Yeah, he could have. Why did Christ keep bringing this out for these disciples to take to every one of these people and said they all had their fill, the 12 extra baskets? Why? Well, he doesn't do anything for dumb reasons. He wasn't not thinking about it. There was a purpose to it. And maybe he wanted the disciples to learn more about him. Probably so, right? And this question then leads us back to the big picture of John's theme throughout this gospel. What were they and what are we supposed to be learning about Jesus here? Well, one option, okay, here's one option to consider. Jesus is the great filler of bellies. Soup's on, let's eat. There's option one. Okay, I hope I presented that well enough to have that be a consideration. Or another option, if Jesus just created all this food out of nothing, creation out of nothing, who alone can do that? Well, God is the creator. He alone can create something from nothing. Then who is Jesus? exactly who he says he is. Jesus is God. He is God the Son. And it sounds, it sounds like maybe the people are getting it in verse 14. Verse 14 says this, when the people, when this crowd saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed, like for sure, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Uh, who is the prophet? Capital P there, probably, in many of your Bibles. Who is the prophet? Uh, what are they talking about here? If you want, go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 18. And we're starting in verse 15. Uh, this idea of the prophet, it's a promise that Israel had received through Moses. And they understood, the Israelites understood this promise of the prophet to be a messianic promise, meaning that they believed the prophet was their Messiah, was the Christ. So Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking, a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. They, they had seen some of the glory of God, and they understood and realized they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it. It says in verse 17, the Lord said to me, they're right. They can't handle it. They're right in what they've spoken. As if to say, they need my glory, but they need my glory to take on flesh, to humbly dwell amongst them. You know, like it says in Philippians 2. And so God says in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Do you remember Jesus saying, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent to me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. 
That's from John 12, by the way. So what's happened here? What's happened here? What are these people in this crowd saying? Okay, so think. Uh, healings are happening. Healings are happening. Check. Think, think Moses with the, with the rod, with the serpent, and, and everybody said, look and live. And that pictured Christ, but what was Moses a part of there? There were healings going on in the midst of the people of Israel. So healings are happening. Check. Um, it's near Passover time. That's pretty Moses-y. Okay, so check. Passover time. Uh, there's a big crowd. There's a big crowd, and we're, we're near a mountain. Check. Sweet. Uh, that man was on that mountain away from us. Mount Sinai. Check. Sweet. What's happening? Right? Putting all these pieces together, and we just got a bunch of food miraculously. Manna. Check. This guy is just like Moses. He's the prophet. It's happening. He's here. And they lived happily ever after. Right? Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, to make him king. Let me read that to you again. See if you catch all those. Perceiving then, this is Jesus knowing their hearts, they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. King Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And as we read this, we might think, wait, what? What? They called you the prophet, Jesus. Uh, They just said that you were the Messiah. They believe you're the Messiah. What are you doing? Why are you withdrawing from them? Do you want to alienate this crowd and offend all these people? This is your moment. You're the Messiah and they want you. But no, they don't. They don't want him. What do they want? Do you remember our options from earlier? Uh, following the theme of this book? Is Jesus God and their Savior uh, from their own sin and condemnation? Or is Jesus the great filler of bellies, the healer of all physical diseases? Soup's on. Dinner's ready. Bring your sick. Oh, and let's kick Rome's tail out of here. We have our king. Which option is it? If Jesus knew to withdraw and get away from this now mob, this mob, uh, which option is it? What did they want? And there's a lot of evidence of their thinking later on in this chapter. We'll spend the next three weeks going through the rest of John chapter 6. But this text right here tells us what we need to know for today. Uh, First, as we've already stated, Jesus knew to withdraw. What they wanted was not his primary mission. And he knew they didn't get it. 
What does James 4, 8 say? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Not withdraw. Uh, They must not have been drawing near. In drawing near to Christ this way, to forcibly make Him their King, uh, the kind of King and Messiah that they wanted, they were drawing very far away from God. And Jesus said Himself, uh, the greatest will be the servant, right? And that's what the people seem to want. Serve me my dinner. Serve me my health. Serve me my pride and independence from Rome. Serve me whatever I want. But what does that leave out? Well, how about repentance? Uh, how about freedom from their bondage to sin? How about new birth? How about no more condemnation? These people were satisfied with their condemnation if they got the goods. Does that make sense? That's how they're acting. You know, the reason why Jesus came to the world that he created, why he was given by the Father, was all the things they didn't want. The reason he did these miracles during this time of ministry, proving that he is the only one acceptable to be made our sacrifice, to die in our place, to suffer for our sin, for our repentance, for our freedom from our bondage to sin, for our new birth, for no condemnation. Those are the reasons why Christ came to die. May God help us to see our sin as a bigger problem than our hunger, than our health, than our bank accounts, than our status or our clout in society. Jesus didn't come to take all of our temporal, fleshly cares away. He came to care for you and for me, for our greatest need. And he accomplished that In full, where? At the cross. At the cross. May God grant us the desire for Him, not for His power, for what He can give us. Uh, John Piper says it this way, Jesus didn't come to serve our unregenerate appetites. He came to change our appetites. Jesus didn't come to serve our unregenerate appetites. He changed our our appetites. And what does that change look like, we might ask? Uh, how, here's some uh, passages that sum it up pretty well, what this change looks like. First, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. It says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. That's what we just saw today in, in John 6. People regarding Christ according to the flesh. And Paul says, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God changed you. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And who did it? God did it. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility 
of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Why? Due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Remember, you didn't learn Christ through your selfish, fleshly, temporal, condemned, self-motivated focus. Crazy, isn't it? We don't learn Christ through the flesh, through selfishness. That's not how it works. That's not how people come to Jesus. You're a new creation of God in Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt. It's falling apart. Whether we agree with that or not, our old selves were falling apart and those ways are corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, changing your thinking, therefore changing your desires which changes your actions. Verse 24, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's a change in us. And then finally, with this call from God's word to righteousness and the explanation of why it comes and where it comes from, please know this. This is from our la- the last verse of our passage today. No one makes Jesus their king. You hear that? No one makes Jesus their king. God has already made that call. Would you agree with that? And Jesus is king. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And every knee will bow. In our devotions in the last month, we're going through the book of Joshua. And Joshua 5, 13 through 15 says this, and I've been thinking about it a lot over the last couple of weeks. It says this, when Joshua was by Jericho, so they're getting ready to go to battle, right? Getting ready to go in there and and take the promised land. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, no. What? Are you for me or against me? No. (laughs) But I am the commander. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And now I have come. And Joshua, guess what he did? He fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Yeah, that flipped real fast, didn't it? And rightly so. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals. Remember hearing that before? Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And guess what Joshua did? He took off his sandals, right? Joshua was caught up in the moment. And he forgot who existed for who. You make sense? God was God. Joshua was Joshua. The the commander of the Lord's army. God could have said to Joshua there, No, uh, Joshua, you're for me. 
right? And he would have been perfectly right in saying that. So if you're here today, if you're here today, you, you've heard about Jesus, you know uh, that he died on the cross to pay for your sin, you intend to get around to getting saved when you're good and ready, please realize that right now, in that mindset, you are in active, present rebellion against God. If you're going to do your thing with God on your terms and your way, you are actively rebelling against God right now. You are not the commander of the Lord. He is the commander of his army. He is the creator of this world, of this universe. And I would ask you, I would ask you, the only right response, like Joshua, repent. Repent. Stop fighting against God. Give up. That is a war you're never going to win. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Remember, why did God make us? To enjoy him. And we are in our condemned already natural state fighting against him. But we can enjoy him. He gives us that. If you're here today and you prayed to get saved, you've put your faith and trust in Christ, maybe even at a pretty young age. You know that you were sincere. You know that you get it. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're a believer. But maybe you'd think you'd rather wait to do something like getting baptized. You want to wait to live for Christ because of how hard you think it might be around people at school, around people at work. You just don't think you're ready for that yet. What does a passage like this say to you and to me? When is it time to be who God created us to be? To identify with and follow your maker and savior and Lord. Um, At our men's Bible study on Friday, I was convicted when we read through the conversion of Cornelius in Acts 10. After Cornelius and his household believed, it says in Acts 10.48, he, Peter, commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So take that back. They got saved that day. Uh, That was irrefutable. The Holy Spirit came just like he had come in Pentecost. They knew now, maybe, man, Gentiles can get saved too, because up to that point, they weren't so sure. And what was the next thing to do for them? Peter said, you get baptized. He didn't say, oh, that's so great. We'll watch for a while and see how it goes. And when you feel like you're ready, when you're ready to take that step, then you let us know. You know. He said, do it. Get back. Now, he's Peter, okay? But it was a command of the Lord, and it was expected to be followed. So what do we do with that? Commanded? We say, isn't that harsh? Uh, shouldn't we have waited until they felt ready or show they were really committed? And the answer is, well, no. Peter loved them. And that's where we sometimes get tricked up, isn't it? Peter said, do it. Do it now. And Peter was loving them. Peter loved them, and he led them well by telling them and teaching them how to show their loyalty, how to commit to the Lord and, and, and identify with them, how to actually obey their Savior and King. And they did. They did. They obeyed. It's kind of a, a simple thing, actually, isn't it? When God says, do this, And we say, when I'm ready, what are we saying? No! (laughs) 
When God says, do this, and when I say, I, when I'm ready, I'm saying to God, no. And I'm also saying, I'm in charge. I will decide when I should do this. All of us can benefit from these truths. Jesus did not come to make me the king of my world. He is the king of his world. Jesus did not come to make me feel good or to think super highly of myself. He came to bring me peace with God when I was at war against him. A war that I could never win. Remember, peace with God does not mean just tranquility of mindset. Okay? We can't wait to have peace before we obey. That isn't peace. We have peace walking with him in obedience. Jesus did not come to give me treasures. He is our treasure and the prize of our calling. And Jesus did not come to fill my tummy with bread. We're going to see in the rest of John 6, he is the bread of life. May God help us. God gave his only son to serve us by saving us from eternal damnation because of our sin against him. And sometimes we treat him like he's our butler, our chef, a genie that we can rub the lamp and get our three wishes or a get-rich-quick scheme. And in that, Christ humbled himself to serve us while we're like that and worse. Please do not take his service for us for granted and minimize its purpose. It's like we're saying, Jesus, are you for me or against me? Because if you're for me, then where's my stuff? And if you're against me, then get out of the way because i got things to do. And Jesus would say, and I wrote to myself, calm down. And Jesus would say, no, I am the commander. I am your creator. You and I are for him. Because God is merciful. Because God is gracious. Christ died. He died our death. He suffered our wrath. He served us. And though he doesn't exist for us, he chose to die for us and to fight for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? No one will ever make Jesus their king. But God will build his church. He will give life to the dead. Here's a bunch of them right here. Amen? He's going to make followers of Jesus. So church, let's be who God is making us to be. Let's follow Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thank you. As we look into your word and see who you are in all of your glory and all of your holiness and all of your justice and all of your power, knowing everything from all time, knowing the depths of our hearts, everything we desire, everything we think, the cause of every emotion, 
Lord, you loved us. And you gave Christ, God the Son, taking on flesh and dwelling amongst us and dealing and going through these kinds of things. People openly rejecting who he really was and trying to force him into being their servant in a way that was nothing of what you had come to do. And you still, Lord, by your will, Christ went to the cross and suffered in our place and took our penalty and gave us salvation. God, thank you. God, may we think much of you. May we learn more of how to think rightly about you. And God, may that compel us to live for you and to serve you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.